Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 17, 2016. The share ID for Friday, July 15, is 8918. That's 8918. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Doctor's Opinion, Defining My Real Problem. The doctor's opinion is the foundation of the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and of the entire AA fellowship. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire book doesn't make sense. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy to the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of food, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again. With us today to speak about the doctor's opinion is Kim G, a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is dedicated to living this program of recovery and certainly dedicated to teaching the solution as outlined in the big book. And with great pleasure, I welcome Kim G. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And I'm so excited to talk to you guys about the doctor's opinion. You know, and I like the idea of saying defining my real problem because I'm someone who's been in Overeaters Anonymous for 22 years and I've only been recovered for the last five and a half. And for me personally, I think a lot of it has to do with this, this chapter was never brought to life for me because I thought for years you know, before OA and even in OA that food and weight was my problem. And just so you can demonstrate that, you know, in my early 20s, I was a size 24. I was diagnosed morbidly obese, and I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without getting short of breath. I then really worked on my bulimia, and I was the size I am now, which is an 810, binging and purging and over-exercising. But I also, too, in Overeaters Anonymous, dieted my way down to a size 2, where my menstrual cycle stopped, and also I started to lose my hair. So if food and weight was really my problem, I've gotten you know, abstinent hundreds of times. Why, didn't, why wasn't I okay? Why didn't my problem go away? I've gotten to go weight dozens of times. Why was I not okay? Why did my problem not go away? It's because I needed to know what my real problem was, and that's going to be defined in this chapter. And if I don't buy in to the idea of what a real compulsive overeater is, the rest of the book makes no sense. And I'm not going to have the urgency to do the work that is required to recover. So I want to challenge you guys to something. If you listen to this presentation, I want to challenge you at the end of the presentation to take some time. There's something called an elevator speech. And the concept is if you're a salesman and you're trying to sell your product to a CEO and you get put in the elevator with him, how would you sell your product before you both get off that elevator at the top floor? So after this presentation, I want you to kind of, you know, get quiet and think, if a newcomer comes to you and says, listen, I can't stay, but I don't know if I belong here, can you tell me 
I only have a couple minutes. Can you tell me what a compulsive overeater is so I know if I should come back next week? How would you describe that? How would you describe what the real compulsive overeater is, the person who needs this program? And maybe call a recovered person and ask if you can share it with them, or call someone who is new and ask to share it with them. So that's my hope for today. I'm going to be concentrating on the doctor's opinion. However, I will be sprinkling in some of the other step one chapters because I love the consistency of the big book. Each page builds on the next and gives us a really good description of what the real compulsive overeater is. So I'm actually going to start on page 25. Because after being away for 17 years in the middle of a five-year relapse and I called into a phone meeting, I think, if my memory is correct, we were around on this page and something hit me about it. On page 25 in that second full paragraph, it says, the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we've had a deep and effective spiritual experiences. And what I was, got in touch with was, yes, I had a lot of deep experiences in OA. However, if I'm in the middle of a relapse again, obviously what I was doing wasn't effective. And I needed to smash old ideas, I needed delusion smash, and I needed to look at this work with brand new eyes. Because I now wanted not only an effective spiritual, not only a, a deep spiritual experience, but an effective spiritual experience. So I'm going to ask you guys to do the same, to open up your minds to, old ide to new ideas. So let's start at the doctor's opinion, that first page, which in the fourth edition is XXVI. And the first letter, the second paragraph of the first letter, it says, in late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I have come to regard as hopeless. So that's very essential, an alcoholic of the type I've come to regard as hopeless. You know, if you look at statistics specifically of America, two-thirds of Americans are obese. I don't believe that two-thirds of Americans are compulsive overeaters. If you overeat, you will be overweight. It's as simple as that. But that's not my problem. So Dr. Silkworth, as he was treating these alcoholics, started to see there were different types. There were certain types that they would have a bad bout with alcohol, and he would dry them out, and they would leave the hospital, and he would never see them again. There's another type that he would see once, twice, maybe even three times, but he would sit them down and say, listen, I think that you can't handle your drinking. My suggestion is don't drink at all. And that person would leave the hospital and he would never see them again. But there was a certain percentage, what he um, said was about 10%, and no matter how many times he dried them out, and no matter how many times he told them about the consequences of drinking, they would return over and over and over. And that is the type that he is writing this book for. That is the type that Overeaters Anonymous is made for. And we're, you're going to read about that, and there's a solution. The moderate eater, the heavy eater, and the true compulsive overeater. The moderate eater and the heavy eater would benefit from a 12-step program. But for those of us who are the real compulsive overeaters, it's a life and death errand. You know, I often hear a common question on the line is, what does this recovered word mean? You guys are so arrogant for saying recovered. So we're going to learn about this twofold illness. We have an allergy to the body, permanent condition, never ever going to have those binge foods again. And that's why I'm not cured. But I have a mental obsession that is treated through the 12 steps. And if I apply these steps 
and, and then on a daily basis have it, I'm recovered, which means a power greater than myself has removed the obsession. And if the obsession is removed, I'm not going to want the food, which means I'm not going to pick up the food, which means I'm not going to trigger the allergy. That's the definition of recovered. For me personally, recovered means the power has done something for me which I've never been able to do for myself. Recovering is Kim hustling, trying to find that perfect food plan, that perfect sponsor, that, that magical number of interaction of phone calls and meetings so that I can stay abstinent. Just to give you another example, I broke my ankle like five years ago. Really, really bad. I am recovered from that injury. You would never know I broke my ankle. However, I'm very aware that if I don't continue to do my yoga, if I don't continue to be active, what's going to happen is that ankle's going to start to hurt and it's going to stiffen up. It's the same way with my recovery. I am recovered today. However, I know if I stop these practices, I am always will be a compulsive overeater and I will pick up if I don't treat the mental obsession. So if we turn, just to kind of reiterate that, in the next paragraph, the last sentence, it says, this man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So that's what they're saying again. We have recovered. And we are the type that other methods have failed completely. So that's when we're willing. You know, we've tried all the diet programs. Maybe we've even had some surgery. Maybe we've tried moving to a different location. Maybe we've tried, at least for me, finding that guy, because if I'm in that guy, with that guy, I'm not going to want to eat. If I can arrange my outside life in such a way that I'm happy, I'm not going to want to eat. But for those with other methods have failed completely is the ones that we're going to be open up to this way of living. So if we turn to the next page, XXVI, after Dr. Silkworth's first letter, Bill intercedes and gives some information. So it says, the physician who at our request, is right under Dr. Silkworth's signature, at a request, gave us this letter, has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is a permanent condition. When, if we turn to page 33, it's going to back that up in more about alcoholism. And the first full paragraph, last sentence, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Because if I don't believe this, if I don't fully concede this, if I'm 98% sure that I have this allergy, that 2% is going to take me out. Which is why, if you look at the big book, the largest percentage of pages is on step one. Because until we are totally defeated, until we understand there is no way out. I mean, the simplest def definition I've ever heard of step one is, oh crap, I'm screwed. And that's the posture that will get us to do the rest of the work. So we must believe that. Further on in that same paragraph, it talks about being maladjusted to life. Now, for many years, I thought in Overeaters Anonymous, well, if I'm maladjusted to life, what I have to do is get my life in order. I was told things like, well, avoid people, places, and things. Avoid my triggers. If I change my life circumstances or feelings, I won't eat. And I have to tell you, I have come in to, to realize for myself that I only have one trigger. If I am in untreated alcoholism and my one trigger is I'm, going, I'm awake, because if I'm awake in untreated compulsive overeating, there's a good chance I'm going to pick up. 
So I know we can't see each other, but I'm going to take a little survey because if it is just a maladjustment to life, then maybe I can try to get adjusted in life. So how many of you out there have eaten when you're sad? How many of you have eaten when you're happy? How many of you eaten with a good job? How many of you eaten when you've gotten fired? How many of you eaten when your relationship is going well? How many of you have eaten when you've broken up a relationship? If that's your truth, which is my truth, then that means there's not a circumstance in life that I am not going to eat over. So if you go down to that same paragraph, the last sentence, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And one of the things that makes me sad is that there are groups, individuals, and meetings that don't believe this. They really believe that compulsive overeating is simply a behavior. And if I get in touch with God, then what's going to happen is I'm going to be able to moderately eat my binge foods. And the way I do that is to work the steps, continue to eat, and somehow I'm going to magically just start eating like a normal person. Unfortunately, that's not going to work for the alcoholic of the type in here because they're specifically telling us we have an allergy. So if someone is able to do that, if someone is able to eat moderately their binge foods and be happy about it, I'm going to postulate they're not an alcoholic of the type in here. And if you are the alcoholic and the type in here and you try to mimic someone that's doing that, you're probably going to die in this disease. So if that is a truth for you, my hats off to you, I ask you one thing. Please do not sponsor someone like me because you will kill me. So let's look now at the bottom of that same page, that last paragraph. It says, though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. So what is the spiritual? The spiritual is 10 and 11. How do I do 10 and 11? I first have to do steps 1 through 9 so I can learn the skill set to implement in 10 and 11. And what is the altruistic plane? That's step 12. You know, I looked up the word altruism. It says a feeling and behavior that shows a desire to help others and people with a, with, with a lack of self-selfishness. I've got to tell you, I wasn't capable of doing that until I worked through these steps. What I was told, what type of plane was I supposed to work this out on? I needed to keep it green. Now let me tell you how I keep it green today. Because if I am working step 12, I am working the 12 steps. When I'm working step 12, I am in touch with my powerlessness because I'm teaching people the doctor's opinion through more about alcoholism. If, I'm, if I am working with others in step two by teaching someone else they need a power, I am reaffirming the idea that I need a power. And if I'm teaching step three to make that decision to turn towards a power and away from self-centeredness, I am reminded what my life is like living on self-will. I'm going to read up also, too, because once again, they, they talk about this here. We haven't even started the steps, and they're already talking a couple different times in this chapter about working with others. So I'm just going to jump to page 89, where it says, Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with alcoholics. So what I often do is, if they, this practical experience isn't just by successes, it's by failures. So sometimes I'll flip a sentence. So I often think of this sentence this way. Practical experience shows that if we don't work with others, we're going to eat again. Why? Because this doctor's opinion needs to be a living, breathing part of my life. And in isolation, my brain 
will convince me that I'm different. I'm better. I'm at goal weight. I don't need to do all the work that I used to do. So now let's turn to the following page, XXVII. And now we have a second letter from um, Dr. Silkworth, which is, which, um, I'm sorry. Okay, trying to write in. It says, the first paragraph of the doctor after the doctor writes, the subjects presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those who are afflicted with addiction. So I looked up that word paramount, very important, of highest rank of importance, superior to all others. And what does the word addiction mean? Strong and harmful need to regularly have something or do something. So I have to ask myself, am I afflicted with this, this illness? And I just want to say this. I always like to say when I say my opinion. I just want to say something with opinion because I think sometimes we use that word addiction way too easily in, in society today. Not all things we go to are an addiction. I tell you, I, I once in a while will spend too much money. And there's consequences when I do that. But it's not an addiction. It's, I can actually get ease and comfort out of shopping if I'm upset. You know, I drank alcoholically for 10 years. A bad enough thing happened, I never drank again. It's not an addiction for me. So I have to really ask myself, I think a lot of times we say, well, okay, well, I'm not eating, but I'm shopping, I'm doing these things. I'm, I'm multi, you know, I have a 10 million addictions. I'm not saying people aren't really addicted, and there definitely are, but I think sometimes we have to understand the seriousness of an addiction. Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Not everything we do is an addiction. So I have to ask myself, am I afflicted? Do I have an addiction when it comes to food? Because that means I have the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, and I need a spiritual experience for that. There's other things in my life that I have gone to when I've been upset that aren't an addiction. Okay, so further on that same page, it's one, two, three, four, the fifth paragraph. It says, many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. So I have to say that, you know, one of the things I was told when I came into OA was just go to six meetings and get comfortable. You know, get some abstinence under your belt, maybe in four or five months, start the steps. You can't do a fourth step until you've been absent at least six months to a year. Just get comfortable. What this is saying is that practical application at once. I have to start doing these steps immediately. Overeaters Anonymous will not help you get abstinent. That we have to do on our own. But it will help us stay abstinent if we get into the work right away. This is not about information. This is about transformation. Meetings don't treat compulsive overeating. Meetings will expose you to the solution. But unless you pick up that kit of spiritual tools, it's not going to have any depth and weight for you. So we have to put the, down the food and immediately get into step work. Recovery is not through osmosis. It's through action, action, and action. So now let's get into the magical page. I consider this a magical page, XXVIII. So they're going to ground home. What does it mean to be afflicted with this addiction? That first full paragraph on page XXVIII. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. 
These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So this idea of an allergy can be confusing because I would think to myself, okay, you know, I can eat enough pasta for like a family of 10. How can I be allergic? I've never had runny nose. I've never had itchy eyes. I've never broken out in a rash. What I didn't realize, because my alcoholic life is my only normal one, is that eating enough pasta for a family of 10 is not normal. That is my allergic reaction. My allergic reaction is this phenomenon of craving, which explains to me when the first couple of Oreos were like, ah, but three, four, five sleeves in, I'm shoving it in so fast I can't even taste it because that feeling intensifies and it doesn't satisfy. So for example, I am not an alcoholic, even though I drank alcoholically for many years. If I sat down today with anyone on the line who's also an alcoholic, and we both had five shots of tequila, we would both get drunk because that's the normal reaction to alcohol. The difference is, as I feel a little bit nauseous, a little bit tipsy, a little bit out of control, I do not like that feeling, and I don't want any more alcohol. The alcoholic feels a charged up, excited, got to have more feeling, and they're not only going to want the rest of my alcohol, they're going to go out and seek more alcohol. So if one out of 10 people react like the alcoholic and nine out of 10 people react like me, it simply means I have an allergy. It doesn't mean I'm weak-willed. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I have poor moral character. It means I have an allergy. That took the guilt and the shame out of being a compulsive overeater for me. It also explained to me, when as a child I would go to a birthday party and I would have my one piece of cake and I'd be dying, wanting more, hoping maybe the mother would say, does anybody want to help clean up so I can go in the back and eat all everyone's leftovers? And I'm sitting there jonesing, and the girl across from me has half a piece of cake, and I'm so angry because why don't I have the willpower that little girl has? What I didn't realize was she doesn't have willpower. She doesn't want any more cake. In fact, if she had more cake, she might feel a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous, and she doesn't like that feeling. Now what happens is the world looks at me, sees what the food is doing to me, and wonders why I am doing it. But I know what the food is doing for me, and I'm wondering why you're not doing it. You know, I remember last summer having this little lesson where I was out gardening. It was a very, very hot day. And I came in. I was so incredibly thirsty. So I poured myself a big glass of water, had a drink, started doing errands around the house, and came back and saw that I only drank half the water. And I thought to myself, why didn't I drink the whole thing? I was really, really thirsty. And it's because my thirst was quenched. And I thought to myself, huh, I wonder if that's what normal people feel about my binge foods. They're very, very hungry. They eat till the, the, their hunger is satisfied, and they stop, and they don't think about it again. Not my experience, but I'm like, maybe that's what other people are feeling. And that's why it doesn't require willpower for them to not overeat. Now, when it talks about alcohol in any form, you come into an AA meeting, it's pretty clear what your what sobriety is. However, when you come into an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, we all have different allergies. We are blessed and challenged to be in a fellowship that has different allergies. So we have to do some more investigation, which is why I believe, I believe very two things, and I think this is supported by the big book, but I do want to say this is my opinion, that we have to take more time in this doctor's opinion because we have to investigate and know what we're abs of absence is. 
I also feel this is why it's so essential as compulsive overeaters, we go through all 12 steps before we work with people because it's not till step 10 that I am promised neutrality. And if I don't have neutrality, how in the world can I help you discover your binge foods because I'm so invested in mine? Which once again is my opinion why we have so many factions of OA that all eat alike. Because if I'm not, if I don't have neutrality, I can only hang around people that eat exactly like me, or I will quote unquote be triggered. So I want to give and one of the um, things I've heard on the line too, and I feel bad because I do this myself, is I have someone write down their binge foods, thinking of a traffic light. Red foods are the foods you absolutely positively know you're going to binge on. The green foods are those foods you absolutely know you have no problem with. And the yellow foods are the ones that confuse you. Now, unfortunately, where I think this has kind of skewed off is people think yellow foods mean you can occasionally have them. It's the delusion that we can control and enjoy our eating. That is not the purpose of the yellow list. The purpose of the yellow list, at least in my opinion, is to ferret out those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving. So for example with me, one of my yellow foods was french fries. It seemed like sometimes I would be okay with them and sometimes I would binge. But after examining my red foods and my green foods, I remember how people would joke with me and say, Kim, why don't you have some french fries with your ketchup? Because you couldn't see, shout out to you Charles if you're on the line, um, you can't see my french fries because of all the ketchup that's on it. And what I saw was my, my binge foods was sugar. And what is ketchup? It's basically sugar and red food dye. So I was using a potato to get my binge food in me, which was sugar. And once I separated the two of them out, I could safely eat potatoes. In fact, I have potatoes maybe once every few months because I really don't care about them anymore. But I would use a potato to get my binge foods on me by the way it was prepared, which is why when we look at those yellow foods, we can kind of ferret it out. I'll give you another example because I think sometimes we think that absence is sugar and flour. Very common allergies, but it doesn't mean that everyone has that. I had a sponsee that was confused about pasta because she's like, Kim, sometimes I binge on it, sometimes I don't. And I said, well, how do you prepare the pasta? And she said, well, when I have it with marinara sauce, I'm fine. She goes, but if I put Alfredo sauce on it, I can't stop. And what we ferreted out by looking at these yellow foods was that her problem isn't flour. She doesn't have an allergy to flour. She has an allergy to fat. So when she puts that Alfredo sauce on it, which is a high-fat food, she goes to town. So that is the purpose of the yellow list, is to ferret out so we can clearly identify those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors. And if once we do that, there is no such thing as a yellow food, none. That is the delusion that we can control and enjoy our eating. So I just want to give you one more example of the allergy because I would sometimes think, well, maybe I'm just doing this because, you know, I want to have low-calorie food and I want to lose some weight, whatever. This is not a real allergy. I got recovered and I was recovered for a year, and, um, which of course means you're absent. You can't be recovered without being absent. So I've been absent for a year and I had to have a follow-up surgery for my ankle that I broke. So on December 23rd, I had the surgery, same-day surgery, came home and had my family over for, for um, Christmas. And my neighbor had made some cookies, so I had them on the table for my father. And I don't know how old you guys are. I'm almost 50. And I, I remember going to the drive-in theater, and they would have advertisements for the concession stands, and all the cupcakes and the hot dogs would be dancing like rockets. 
I swear to God, the food was dancing. It was physically vibrating, and the smells were unbelievable. I'm like, what in the world is going on? So I excused myself and called a fellow, and this is where God comes in, that will happen to be a nurse. And I'm telling her, and she goes, wait a minute, you had surgery yesterday? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, my God, Kim, they probably gave you a D5 drip. And I'm like, what is that? And one of the things they do for saline, which they put in your IV to help the saline last longer, is they infuse it with dextrose, which is a sugar. So here, unbeknownst to me, I had my binge food going through my veins. I, it, it was such a gift in the sense, I know this is an allergy. I had no idea I ingested it, but I had the severe allergic reaction. And just because it was a mistake doesn't mean I didn't have to go through withdrawal. And it was incredible withdrawal for five to seven days because not only did I ingest it through my mouth, it was coursing through my veins and my system. So that was one of the things that solidified me that I have an allergy. My body doesn't care why I ingested it accidentally, you know, in a different form, whatever, I'm going to have that allergic reaction. So on page XXX, in that fifth paragraph, all these and many others, the last line, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only way we're not going to have the allergic reaction is to not ingest the food. We don't get to control that. We don't get holy enough which I hear people say, well, now that I am recovered, I, God protects me and I can have those foods. My feeling, again, is either you're, you're lying to yourself because you're, 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 you're going to have the reaction, or maybe you were never allergic to that food again, or you're, or you're not a compulsive overeater. For example, with me, I belong to a sect of OA that, that told me to abstain from four things. Two of them were my main binge ingredients, but two of them weren't. I don't have an allergy to two of the ingredients they told me to, so I could go back and eat them, but it wasn't because I did the steps. It was because I was never allergic from, with, to them from the beginning. So one of the things I want to talk about next is this difference between a food plan and abstinence, because they're two different things. Often when I ask someone what their abstinence is, they describe their food plan to me, because that might tell me the, the amounts that they eat, the frequency that they eat, the combination that they eat. And they often will go into a meeting and someone goes, what's abstinence? And they're handed a food plan and say, this is abstinence. Abstinence, according to the World Service, is abstaining from, those food, from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors while, I don't have an impression of looked it up, by working towards or maintaining a normal body weight. I'd like to add in to that ingredients. It was very important for me to get down, not just down the foods, but to specific ingredients. So abstinence is black and white. After I go to the doctor's opinion with someone, at the end of the doctor's opinion, they write down their abstinence. Because that way there's no gray area. If you eat or indulge in those behaviors, you are not abstinent. Bottom line. Now, a food plan is those limits and boundaries around the foods that you do eat. And that's going to change. I just went through menopause. I had to make some changes to my food plan because my metabolism slowed down. My abstinence did not change. People are going to, you know, the majority of us are women. If we get pregnant, if we're breastfeeding, if you go from working a job 12 hours a day at a computer and start to train for a marathon, your food plan is going to change, but your abstinence will not change. It's very important that we know the difference between the two. So we, when you look at what are, what are those foods that cause the allergy, I thought it was great. Someone had, I had heard on the meeting, what are those foods that you negotiate? 
you barter or you grieve over. When you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, where do you zone in on? When there's a storm coming and you have to go to the grocery store, what are those foods that make you anxious that if you don't have them in the house, you're not going to get through the storm? Because once again, we should enjoy our food. This is not about deprivation. There's a, the first woman in AA was Marty Mann, and she talked about this Marty Mann test. So I'm going to give it to you in, my, in, my, in a, an example for me. My favorite food by far is a tomato. So if someone came to me and said, okay, Kim, for 30 days I want you to have one tomato, no more, no less, and I'll give you $100,000. Got to tell you guys, I would make that money in a minute. Not a problem, even though I love tomatoes. Now, if you had given me that same scenario and said, Kim, I'll give you a million dollars if you can have two slices of pizza every day for 30 days, no more, no less, I could never make that million dollars ever. There's something different about pizza than it is about a tomato, even though a pizza has tomatoes on it. There's something different. And in my gut, I know that. I know I can't do that. So let's go down and let's look at that again even further. Let's go down to the bottom of XXXVIII. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So I really thought I just liked the taste of Oreos. But they're letting us know we're chasing an effect. So I always use this example for me. Once again, pizza was one of my favorite binge foods. And I would order a, a pie, and I would have my three to four slices, and I'd wrap the leftovers in tinfoil and stick them in the refrigerator, saying I'm not going to have any. And 2 o'clock in the morning, I would get up, and I would just go there and eat it. Then I was like, I can't be doing this. So I would have, order the pizza, have my three or four slices, I'd wrap it in tinfoil and I'd stick it in the trash. No more. Not doing this. And I would still get up 2 o'clock in the morning and go in the trash and eat it. And then I'm getting more desperate. So I order the pizza, have the three or four slices, and I throw the leftovers in the trash and don't wrap it in tinfoil. I'm not doing this anymore. And I would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I would go into the trash and I would eat the pizza. And then I'm really desperate. I'm scared now. I can't be doing this anymore. I know I'm dying. So I would order the pizza, have the three or four slices, and I would stick Ajax on the pizza. And I would throw it in the trash. And 2 o'clock in the morning, with tears rolling down my eyes, I would dig in the trash, try to wipe off the Ajax, and still eat the pizza. It can't be that I like pizza that much. I'm chasing an effect. Now, once again, we, things are elusive, they're saying here. So we have to look at what are those foods that create that phenomenon of craving. I love the way Leah talks about something being too sexy. So the way that I look at it, and I always joke about this, because in fact I was on vacation and saw a couple movies of Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13, and I see, I see, I can't remember his name now, oh my gosh, not George Clooney. And I see him, and I know he's a good-looking guy, and I agree he's a good-looking guy. But as soon as Brad Pitt walks on that screen, nothing else exists. Since puberty, it's the blonde hair, blue-eyed, lanky guys that, that just frost my cookies. I can walk into a room of 30 guys, and I know exactly who I'm going to be attracted to. I can't describe it. I didn't make a decision about it. So as you're sitting here listening to this, thinking, 
yeah, I'm not going to admit that at this food. Oh, no way. That, that's, that's, you know, I'm Italian. I can't give up pasta. Or I'm this. I can't do that. This is my family favorite. Those are the exact foods that you need, you need to give up. So we might be elusive, but we know what they are. And it says we cannot differentiate the truth from the false. Our life, alcoholic life is the only normal one. And I have to tell you, that was really just a theory and writing until I started to go through the steps, specifically four through nine, and I started to see how I showed up in the world. I started to see that my babysitting jobs were not chosen by what, how much they paid me or how good the kids were. It was chosen by how good their pantry was. You know, in college, I scheduled all my classes around meals because I was embarrassed to eat in the cafeteria. So I would go to class while everyone else was eating and then come home and, and take all the food to my room because I couldn't eat like I wanted to eat when I was around other people. When I think about weddings in my 20s, I don't remember who's in the wedding party, but I sure remember those people that had those chocolate fountains. They were really cool. And the other thing which we see in, in Bill's story where food was his master, I started to really see that food was my master, not just when I'm eating, but when I'm not eating. Because my way that I go to work, if I'm in the food, I am hitting every fast food joint. If I'm not in the food, I'm avoiding every fast food joint. If I'm in the food, I am going to parties that have the food I want. If I'm not in the food, I'm having to avoid those parties because I can't be around it. It's too painful. So food, whether I was eating it or not eating it, was making every decision in my life. Now, I just want to talk about this, this, this effect. And just because I'm not getting an effect with the food, I'm, I, uh, sorry, someone just texted me. I still need an effect. And that is why I need to get into the steps right away. Because I get that effect from working the steps. I get that effect from the connection with the power. And for me specifically, I get that effect from walking, watching other people wake up by working with them. So I'm still an effect person as a recovered woman, and I understand the consequences. If I don't get an effect from doing the inventories, if I don't get an effect from working from a connection with the power, and I don't get an effect from working with others, my brain is going to default back to the only other thing I ever got an effect from, and that is the food. So if we drop down in that same paragraph, it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks they see others taking with impunity. So restless, irritable, discontent is not about being in the food. Yeah, we are when we're in the food. But my real problem is when I'm not eating. My real problem is sobriety. I can't get comfortable in life. Life gets so loud. How do I quiet it down? And the only way I've been able to quiet my brain of that calamity, that monkey chatter, was to pick up the food. I mean, when I heard people say they had back-to-back -back accidents, number one, I thought they were lying. But secondly, I thought they're out of their freaking minds. Because you know how long a 24-hour day is when you're abstinent? You mean you want you to be abstinent in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening? I mean, to me, a good year in a way was if I was abstinent more than I was an abstinent. And they were told me, don't worry. You know, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. Abstinence will make you feel better. I, sure, I found that out. Because when I'm abstinent, I feel anger better. I feel depression better. I feel anxiety better. That's why I need Overeaters Anonymous. I don't need Overeaters Anonymous because of the allergy. We have rehabs out there for every addiction. If it was simply an allergy to whatever people were addicted to, 
separate them for 28 days, 60 days, and like Dr. Silkworth talked about it, have a rational conversation with them, and they will never, not go back to those foods. I was going to the doctor's opinion with someone last night, and I was telling them this. I abstain from caffeine. I discovered a few years ago that if I have caffeine for a couple days and then don't have it, I get a migraine. And I don't like migraines. So I made the rational decision not to have caffeine. So I abstain from caffeine, but it's not a part of my abstinence. Because number one, the reaction to caffeine is a, is a migraine. It's not a phenomenon of craving. I've never drank caffeine and felt like I had to have more and more of it. And number two, I don't have many, any mental obsession. I am clear, clear of what the consequences are, and I don't want that. We are taught on page 24, Oh, I forget what page it is now. But we're taught, we're taught that we do not remember the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I can't remember it from breakfast to lunch. That is, those are the things that, that the, the big book will help me with. So just to kind of um, reiterate that again later in the chapter, if we turn to page 35, we have this story about Jim. And in the last paragraph, about four lines down, it says, all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So all went well for a time to me is the allergy is not being triggered because the allergy does feel good when it's not triggered. You know, for me personally, I'm sleeping a little bit better. I don't have the seven-second delay. You know, um, my stomach is not as in much distress. Yeah, I feel better. And this is my opinion again, but this is why I see a lot of people getting 30-day coins, but not many people getting 60-day coins because all went well for a time. That freedom from the allergy is very different than the freedom from the mental obsession. And the freedom from the allergy will only last a certain period of time before that mental obsession will come in and say, you must eat now. To give the same idea, when we talk about Fred and more about alcoholism on page 40, um, about 10 lines up, it says, I felt I had every right to be self-confident. That would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. That was my game plan many years in Over Years Anonymous. You know, I'm going to... I'm going to do the tools. I'm going to get the right sponsor. I'm going to have the right food plan. I'm going to stay on guard. I'm going to avoid people, places, and things. I'm going to avoid my triggers. I'm going to keep it green. I'm going to play the tape through, and that's going to be enough. And then a good day, and Overeaters Anonymous was going to bed exhausted, having ate the food just one more day. That tiger in the cage, I didn't let it out. Yes. But once again, what happened to Fred? Even on the best day, not a cloud on the horizon, he still picked up. Why? Because he never treated the alcoholic mind. Abstinence is not my goal. Now, this, again, is my opinion. I came in in 1994, and we had eight tools, and one of the tools was abstinence. But another big thing that was happening in the 1990s was a lot of fat serenity. People who would eat and try to work the steps and just say, we're going to accept ourselves as fat people. And from what I understand, World Service was concerned about that. And what they did is they changed the tool to a food plan and elevated abstinence as what you were supposed to attain from the tools. Now, I, once again, my opinion, I think an unintended consequence of that was it made abstinence the goal. And abstinence is not the goal. Abstinence is the ticket in the door. I want a ticket in the You cannot work these steps unless you're abstinent. It's not the goal. It is the ticket in the door. So continuing on XXIX, after we just finished reading it, it says, after they've succumbed again, succumbed to the desire. So I just want to challenge an old idea about this idea of slips. 
So what does the word succumb mean? It means give way to a superior force to yield to surrender. What is a slip? An accidental fall. So if you, you know, decide that you're at a family gathering and all they have is your binge food, otherwise you're not going to be able to eat and you have that, that is not a slip. That is succumbing to the desire again. I, we are so attached to the number of days that we have that we often will use that as an excuse. And once again, the body doesn't care why it's ingested. So you're going to, I find a lot of people keep themselves in constant withdrawal by using this idea that they have slipped. We have either succumbed to the desire again or we're abstinent. And that desire is the mental obsession. And we're going to see at the bottom of that paragraph, it says this is repeated over and over, this cycle of mental obsession, picking up, phenomenon of craving, having the spree feeling to remorse over and over and over. Unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. So what I see in the doctor's opinion is two things. Allergy, I need entire abstinence. And for the mental obsession, I need an entire psychic change. An entire psychic change is going through steps 1 through 12 and living in 10, 11, and 12. If I stop at step 3, I'm going to go back. If I stop at step 5, I lose a lot of people in 4 and the 5 and step 9. I'm going to go back. Even if I get through and have that, it says in the back of the spiritual awakening, you've got a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. It's not sufficient to maintain recovery. We have that spiritual awakening. What I find a lot of people do is life starts going well. And when life is going well, we don't need a higher power. We got it. We're getting our way. And I have to remember, if I don't live in 10, 11, and 12 and keep tethered to that power, the mental obsession will come back and it will take me down. So I'm just going to end with a couple quotes from different chapters just to reiterate what we've just learned. So if you go to page 34, the, see one, the second full paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. So are you convinced from this, this discussion that you are one of those who are unable to eat moderately? If you're not, you're not going to be able to do this work. It says whether such a person can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which he's already lost the power of choice whether he will drink or not. And once again, those non-spiritual bases is don't drink, go to meetings. The non-spiritual basis is three meetings, this is, my, this is my formula, three meetings a week, three phone calls a day. You know, getting that really strict um, food plan, maybe getting that right sponsor. Those are all quitting on a non-spiritual basis. And if that works for you, my hat is off to you. But once again, you're not the type that they describe in this book, alcoholics of our type, as seriously alcoholic as we are. And once again, if this is your truth, fantastic. But please don't sponsor someone like me. Then if we go to page 44, that first paragraph, you know, in AA, they have about 40 questions of whether you're an, uh, an alcoholic. And in OA, I think we have our 15 questions. And they're all based on consequences. Consequences do not define an alcoholic, and consequences do not define a compulsive overeater. So we're asked two questions in that first paragraph. If, when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely, so in other words, can you stay abstinent contently for any period of time? Now, not just abstinent, but contently. Or if when drinking, you have little control of the amount you take. The way I like to say it is, can I reasonably predict how much I'm going to have? Because maybe sometimes I can have one candy bar. 
Usually it's only when there's one left. But there's sometimes when I have that illusion, especially for me when I eat in public, that I can control it. But can I reasonably predict with any certainty how much I'm going to eat? That's the allergy of the body. It says, if this be the case, he may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So I have to be convinced. If I have, they're saying or, and it says probably. I'm going to postulate if you have both, it's certain. And if that's my reality, then only a spiritual solution will conquer it. What is that spiritual solution? Working steps 1 through 12 in order, absolutely, precisely, specifically how the big book tells us to do it. And we're going to end on page 25, where it's going to slam home this idea, the last paragraph. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. And we've talked about that middle-of-the-road solution before OA and even in OA. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. If we still think we can, you know, we still have some tricks up our sleeve, we're not going to be ready to do these steps. And we've passed from the region from which there is no return from human aid. Once again, getting that right sponsor, putting vision for you on a loop 24-7 in your brain. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. Once again, this really kicked my butt. The intolerable situation I always thought was in the food. And if that is my intolerable situation, then a food plan is going to fix that. Abstinence is going to fix that. What I am taught in these pages is my intolerable situation is being abstinent. Abstinence is so painful. And if I'm in that situation, it's impossible, and I can't get comfortable in my own skin, I have two alternatives. One is to blot out the consciousness, which is to pick up the food. And the other is to seek spiritual help, which is pick up the steps. And it says two alternatives. Alternative is different than choice. Choice means you can do it or not. Alternative means one or the other. And until we're at that point where we are in that intolerable situation where it's one or the other, we're going to explore that door three which we talk about, or we're going to think that we're going to be able to control and enjoy our eating. What a blessed, sacred place that is when we recognize we're in that intolerable situation and we finally make the decision to go for spiritual help. And gratefully, it just means I have to want spiritual help a smidge more than I want the food. And thanks so much for everybody for listening. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Tim, for this wonderful presentation on the doctor's opinion. Thank you for its thoroughness and great clarity. Tim's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We're going to now transition to questions and answers. If you have a question for Tim, press star one to unmute. And identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Elsie M. from outside Philadelphia. Elsie M. Anyone Alita else? P. Alita P. from Minnesota. Alita P. Toby W. Toby W. Susanna K. Susanna K. All right, let's start with that grouping. LCM, you're up. Thank you. This is LCM from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, thank you, Kim, very much for your share. Um, it was fabulous, as always. My question has to do with um, volume. If I have trouble with volume, 
how do I how do you address that issue? Great question, Elsie. Like, like I talked about, we have to abstain from all things that create the phenomenon of craving. So for some of us, and I'm one of them, that if I'm abstaining from my heroin, let's say a Snickers bar, I can eat enough mashed potatoes to create that same effect. In fact, I remember in my 20s deciding I can't, I can't um, diet anymore because I kept gaining weight because as I was abstaining from things, things I wanted, I was just binging in volume on other things. So the way that that has been um, handled with me is I weigh and measure my food because if, I'm, if I am keeping it at a certain amount, which is prescribed by a doctor, then that, 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 um, that phenomenon of craving isn't triggered. And that's not true for all people, Elsie. There's, you know, there's, that's why we need to know the difference between abstinence and a food plan because there's people that weigh and measure as part of their food plan. You know, it's just something that helps them live at boundaries around their food so they don't, they're not going to gain weight. And that's great. But there's some of us, if you get a phenomenon of craving from volume, then that has to be addressed. And most commonly, I see that addressed as with weighing and measuring. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. I'm sorry. I had to unmute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, LCM. Aliva P. Hi. Good morning, everybody. And good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. And thank you, Kim G., for your beautiful share. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting you in Virginia Beach. It was great. Um, I just wanted to <clears throat> kind of um, get your feeling on my home meeting. There's like three of us who are so-called old-timers, and we've been to the meetings for a long time. And two of those gals... Um, they seem to get by with just um, without studying the big book, without um, um, a strict discipline like I have to do. And I, and so when we have newcomers, it gets confusing in our meeting because I will sometimes bring the big book and try to read out that, but most of the people don't want to read out of the big book. So, um, but these people seem to get, the other two seem to get along with not studying the big book or going um, as strictly as laid out in the big book following the procedures. Um, I'm just now, as of recent, discovering that perhaps they're not real compulsive overeaters. And um, so that gets confusing to new oh, to the newcomers. So I'm just wondering, how can that, do you have any suggestions on how that can be dealt with gracefully or would it be perhaps wiser to just start a new meeting, um, another additional um, meeting with the big book study um, process. So if you have any feelings on that, I would love to hear them. Thank you. Thanks, Alita. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I can just tell you my own experience. You know, one of the things the big book talks about is there's no monopoly. We have no monopoly on God. I don't believe that God is, is limited to the first 164 pages in this book. But I know this is my path. So when it says I can, you, know, you can only transmit something that you have, I have to admit you know, the fact that I can't transmit, for example, our 12 and 12 because it didn't work for me. But it works for some people. So I think we need to celebrate the diversity we have in our fellowship. And I think it's my responsibility to know people that use other literature. So if somebody really wants to use the 12 and 12 and maybe they don't need to work with the string, you know, the, um, the way that I need to work it, 
So I know people in, in the fellowship that I can say, well, you know, so-and-so uses that, uses that 12 and 12. Why don't you go talk to her? And one of the things I have found is that we, we create this fellowship we crave idea. I realize I did that all the time, Alita. When I was first came in, you know, I, I, and I, if I was in relapse, I created the fellowship I craved. I would hang around people in relapse. If I was worshiping a food plan, I would create that fellowship I craved by only hanging around people that ate like me. But, you know, now that I have this fellowship I crave with the big book, I just tend to hang around big book people. But I don't ignore other people. I mean, for example, my mother has been in OA for 40 years. My mother has never done the big book. I mean, she did it because in the 70s there was only that, but she didn't really study it. In fact, my mom did the steps through Al-Anon, even though she was in OA, because we didn't have OA material at the time. Um, and her food plan is very different than mine, but I love My mom has incredible recovery. My mom's one of those people that walked into a meeting and was absent from the day she walked in. So I can celebrate that, and my dad gets confused because he thinks it's so weird to work it so differently. But my feeling is celebrate that. You know, I think it's important for us who are, who are big book students to not, not go to other meetings. You know, when I come into a big book meeting, I'm going to do what I did here, page 25. I had two, you know, talk about the, the two alternatives. When I'm in a regular O meeting, I'll say, you know what? I just found out that the problem wasn't being in the food. The problem, the intolerable situation for me was being abstinent. And when I recognized that my life was impossible being abstinent, I had two alternatives. I was going to either go back to the food or, or do these steps. Now, people think I'm incredibly profound, but I'm not, I'm not slamming them over the idea with the big book. I'm just sharing my truth as the big book tells me. So my feeling is get, get quiet with God. Ask how you can be most useful in your fellowship. It might be starting a new meeting. It might be just you know, recognizing the diversity and celebrating that and looking for the person in the room that needs your message and the people that don't need the message your way. Know people in the fellowship. And I have to say, too, we do this among big bookers, too. It's not just that. We have people who study the big book this way and the big book that way. And, you know, I have a certain comfortability doing the big book. If someone needs to go really, really slow, I have girls in my um, area that do something called Big Book Awakenings. I refer them to them. I have a couple girls that, that, that I've worked with that bring people through the steps in two weeks. I can't do that. I will, if someone's really desperate, I'll refer them to her. So I think we're a fellowship that needs to support each other, celebrate our diversity, um, embrace that, but also know our own truths. Well, that was a long question, so I think a short answer, but I hope that helps, Alita. Thank you very much. It does. Thanks, Alita. Toby W. Linda R. L- Lauren S. from Pittsburgh. <laughs> this is Toby W. Yes, uh, go Kim. ahead, Toby, please. Thank you. Uh, Kim, thank you very much. This I is Marion H. Uh, Kim, thank you very much. I've heard you several times, and the part that I can't seem to get through my thick head is what you talk about, the difference between abstinence, and I don't even remember the word you used, oh, full plan. Um, And yes, if you ask me what my abstinence was, I would tell you my full plan. And I think what you're saying, and I really would like you to talk again, maybe it'll get through my head, that my abstinence is abstaining from with the list of foods that I abstain from. 
Is that what you mean? I don't want that. Perfect, Toby. What, what it is is your food plan, when people say, what is your food plan, usually they tell you what they do eat. I have breakfast, lunch, dinner, I have a protein, I have a starch. These are the foods that I do eat. Abstinence is what are the foods and behaviors that you don't eat? What are you actually abstaining from? So, for example, let's say that um, you go to a nutritionist and they tell you to have three vegetables a day. You go through the doctor's opinion and you identify that broccoli gives you that phenomenon of craving. So you know that your absence is broccoli. So therefore, when you have those three servings of vegetables a day, which is your food plan, one of those servings does not include broccoli. Does that kind of clear it up a little bit? Yes. Yes, that, that does. That does. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Thank you very much, Toby. If everybody could stay muted except Kim G and Shoshana K. I think that's Morgan in the background. I can hear her voice. Hi. Good morning. It's Shoshana K. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Shoshana. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for everything, as always. I had a question about when we're first starting to sponsor and we're taking someone through the doctor's opinion and going through the rest of the chapters after that, and they pick up the food again, and then like two weeks later they're fine, and then they pick up the food again. How do you deal with that as a sponsor? Thanks, Shoshana. First of all, I I love Jim and Fred, not just from the perspective of learning step one, but learning the technique that these AA guys did in sponsoring. And you see that every time they they were were, um, drunk in rapid succession, what did they do? They always brought them back to step one. So that's my instructions from the big book. Bring them back to step one. Because until you know you're powerless, you're not going to be seeking a power in step two. So the other thing I always suggest to people is if you're, if you're kind of confused how to proceed is reread um, Working With Others, pages um, 89 to 97, because that really gives us the instructions. So I'm just going to read page 96. It says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. So the big book is telling us to leave him alone. So I don't think there's one set answer. What I personally do, Shoshana, if someone picks up, is I get quiet in meditation and ask God, can I be useful? Can I be useful? And if I feel I can be useful, we go back to step one and we review. I may not go into the detail, but we review. I often ask them to explain to me paragraphs because I want to bust those delusions. Where do they think they can just get back on track? Because obviously they can. If they think it every two weeks, they can, they can pick up and get back on track. If the answer is I can't be useful, so for example, maybe I've taken them through a couple different times. They've already heard my shtick. So maybe they need to have a different teacher. Maybe they need to hear it in a different voice, and I have to be humble enough to say, you know what, I can't be useful here. You need to find another teacher. I had a wonderful experience recently. I have a really hard time with young girls, like in college, because that was one of my diseases at its worst. And I tend to, my objectivity goes away. I want to to take care of them. I don't want them to suffer like I did. 
and I was I was working with a young girl in college, and she was picking up, and she was having finals, and I thought, oh my god. But I finally got to the point that I heard in meditation, I need to let her go. I need to let her go. I'm not being helpful to her. And she called me back a couple months later, told me that after I dropped her, that she had three weeks of the worst binges she's ever had in her entire life. And she got so desperate, and she asked someone in her um, home group to sponsor her, went through the 12 steps, and is now recovered, and was calling me because she said, if anybody needs help, to please send her their way. I was like, thank you, God, because it was only by allowing the, you know, saying that I can't be useful and this girl having a step one experience the way she had that step one experience that got her to a point that she was, that she was able to do the work. So I don't want to stand in the way of the food doing what it needs to do. Mm. So I would just get quiet and ask God if you can be useful. And to me, my thing, sometimes it's a, it's a form of arrogance for me to think I can help everybody. I can't. Thank you, Shoshana Kay. Thank you so much. Linda R., your turn. Would I be able to get to today's Good uh, morning. Good oh. morning, Kim. Hello. Yes, Hello? Linda, R. Linda R. Yes, yes hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for your service, Kim. You know, I've been listening to you a lot lately, and really, I want to tell you how much I appreciate your wisdom. It's really been helping me see new things in my recovery and uh, my awareness. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I go, I'm a snowbird, so I live in two places, you know, throughout the year. And the thing that I wanted to ask you is, is how do you handle the constant questioning about why you choose not to pick up certain things? Uh, it was recently my birthday, and I, you know, I played this game with about 10 women and, they knew it was my birthday. You know, I've been, you know, working this program for many years, and they are very aware that I have certain needs when I order food. And they ordered me this forbidden thing that came with a lot of spoons. And I just, I was so, like, taken aback by that. And I said nothing. I just thanked them, and I passed it around, and they questioned me. You mean even on your birthday? So I just wanted to know if you had any feedback about how do you handle the pr- it's pressure. It's it's a pressure. They're always questioning, and some of the people here know I have you know break, broken my anonymity, but I trust them. But just give me some feedback on that if you have it, please. Thank you. So I just want to make sure, Lynn, you're talking about from people who are not compulsive readers. Yes. Put it down. Okay. Yes. Civilians. Okay. Okay. Um, honestly, I don't get in that discussion. I simply tell people that I'm allergic and thank you. I don't get in discussions with people. I don't. I don't feel a need to to justify it. And, and, and at least for me, it seems it seems a lot easier today because there's so many people that are gluten free. And you know, now that I'm getting older, a lot of people aren't eating certain things because of their diabetes or you know non-related compulsive overeating stuff. Um, but I find that I only want to defend what I feel um, vulnerable about. And I don't feel vulnerable about the fact that I you know I can't eat certain things because I have an allergy to them. And I don't need to explain it beyond that. Nothing even about I mean, what I often do, Linda, is because I want to be helpful to those people who have my problem. As I'll often say that, you know, um, yeah, I can't have it. I'm allergic to it. And if someone says, well, what does that mean? I'll sometimes say, well, I find when I eat those substances, I, I can't stop eating them, so it's not worth it to eat it. And for someone who's not a compulsive overeater, that just goes right over their head. But maybe there's someone who's listening that is a compulsive overeater, and they might come up to me a couple days later and say, what did you mean by that? 
So I like to be honest and upfront, and I don't feel a need to defend it. And I do appreciate it. I mean, I, this past winter I um, was supervising some people who also live on disability, and for Christmas she got everyone a candy bar, and she got me a sugar-free candy bar. And I was just so touched that she you know, remembered that, knew that I didn't eat sugar and that she tried to make accommodations for me. And I just felt blessed. I didn't feel like she was, because she doesn't understand. Um, and then a, a girl next to me, her mom's diabetic, so I gave her the, uh, the candy bar when she left. Um, but yeah, I don't, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't get worked up about stuff like that, to be honest. Thank you, Linda R. Warren S. Thank you. Your turn. Marion H. I got you, Marion. Huh? Okay. All right. Oof. Uh, Lauren S., as in Sam from Pittsburgh, PA. Uh, compulsive over ear. Kim, other than sharing on this meeting today, what else did you do to grow closer to your higher power this morning? Thanks. Um, I, I I believe in the disciplines of 10 and 11. That's what, that's, so that's what I do. So in the morning I get up and um, I personally listen to the pages 86 to 88 because I have dogs and it's just easier for me. I recorded my voice and I listen to that, and then I, um, I have another spiritual practice that I do that I read a lesson in the morning, and I set my um, a timer for 10 minutes. So what I personally believe um, is to stay in this recovered state, I have to stay connected to that power. And the way that I do that, the skeleton, is steps 10 and 11. And then I have other practices which enhance it. And what my experience is, is once I clean up all my step nines and I'm living in 10, I don't have as many amends to do because I'm not causing harm. I, mean, I have this skill set now that can stop me in real time from causing harm. I also find the more that I get into step 11, which is three practices, a morning routine, an evening routine, pausing throughout the day, I don't have to do as many step 10s because step 10s I do when I'm disturbed. If I'm staying tethered to God in step 11 by pausing, I don't need to do as many step 10s. I also find that I unravel the same way. If I let up on my step 11 practices, all of a sudden I'm doing a lot more step 10s because I'm getting disturbed. If I let up on my step 10 practices, suddenly I'm causing harm and having to do step 9. So the way that I stay connected to that power is by using the disciplines of 10 and 11. I just want to add this because I heard this and it really hit me. Step 12 is where I really feel God. I don't always feel God within me, but I can see God in you. And this guy was talking about, because um, for those of you who don't have like a, you know, like a religious higher power, this guy talked about in the 1800s in England, there was a guy's job that he would light the lamppost and, you know, with a, you know, whatever, like propane or whatever. And he said, you never knew where he was, but you could always tell where he had been. And that's how I experienced my higher power in many ways. I may not know exactly where he is, and I might be a little bit um, agnostic or atheistic in my thinking, not believing in a power, but if I continue to do 10, 11, and specifically 12, I can see God in, the, in, in, the, in other people, and I can see God as I look at, do my review at night. So that's how I stay connected. Thank you, Lauren S. Marianne, your turn. Kim, thank you so very much for your share. I, I did hear you before. I'm, I'm wondering, because I have to leave, would I be able to get the, the code for today? That would be, I have no idea. Oh, but this, Yes, I don't have that at the moment, but certainly you can re-listen to this recording 
by calling 712-432-5203, use the same conference code, and then press zero pound, and that will access this recording. All right. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Marion. Devorah S., who else has a question at this time? Maryland. I didn't catch the name. Maryland? Rochelle M. Rochelle, I'm sorry, Rochelle. Yes, okay. Anyone else? This will be the final invitation for questions. Okay, well, let's get started with Devorah on this group. Hi, thank you so much. Um, and I just wanted to ask, if he talks about in this book about the two experiences, how he, what is the solution he relates to two experiences of men that he, had, that he worked with. So I just want to know who they are because I'm getting conflicting um, answers and I'm not sure. So the first one, about one year prior to his experience, a man was going to be treated for chronic alcoholism. Who is that, Kim? I have to tell you, Vidor, I've heard conflicting things, too, so I don't know. I mean, Harlan, Harlan and Ruth seem to be the best historians that I have met, but I, I, I hesitate to say because I've heard two different names for both those stories, so I'm not really sure. I would just be giving you a rumor. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Nobody's sure because I feel funny not knowing you. Okay. Great. Thank you, Devora. Thank you. And Rochelle M., Thank you very much for the presentation, Kim and uh, Leah, for your moderating, and everybody's on the line. Um, I, I, I'm a little confused with something that you said. You said you have to begin working immediately this 12 steps, but I, I thought that when you're working with a newcomer, first they have to spend a period of abstinence, like was I think it's described in, in uh, the experience of uh, Bill W. and his friend when they first had to see to it the guy was dried out before they would start working with him. So I've had people approach me who said, I, I'm, not, I'm not abstinent yet, but um, I, I want to work the steps. I'm sorry, hold on, somebody else is here. I'm, I'm going to mute myself. Um, okay, well, let me, I always like to use the big book as, as the guide. Um, this is, and this is for me personally. I think of Ebby and Bill, that first kitchen table conversation, and Bill is actively drinking, actively drinking, and he's, telling him about basically step one and two. And that's kind of what I think about. I think that specifically with our addiction, a lot of people don't know they're abstinent, so they think they're abstinent and they're not. So when I take through the people through the doctor's opinion, I assume that they're still eating, whether it's purposely or not purposely. We identify what their abstinence is, they agree to put it down, and we make an appointment in two days or one day to start Bill's story so they have 24 hours, 48 hours under their belt. if we look at the other stories in here, when Bill met Bob, he called and Bill was drunk on a Saturday night where he was so drunk he couldn't see Bill, and Bill saw him on Sunday night, so that's one day. When Bill and Bob approached Bill Dodson, um, they called the hospital and they said, put him in a private room, we'll be down in a couple days, and two days later they went down to see him. So the big book is clear that once we... Once we put that food down, we have no defense against that first drink. So we need to get into the, into the work very quickly. From what I understand, and this is just my conjecture, when the rehab started coming in, they're being confined into a room. So they would say, okay, well, you're going to go to a rehab, get 
sober for 28 days or whatever that is, then you'll start the steps. That was something that was kind of the fellowship saying that. I think our fellowship kind of does that. If that's what your comfort level is, I believe God's going to bring people to you that you can help if you have a requirement of what, one week, two week, or whatever. Um, but I just want to caution you from the, from the spiritual experience for anybody who thinks that, you know, this idea of, you know, two, you know, I don't know, like six months before you can start the steps. There's a, there's a group up in New England I heard that actually says you have to be absent for seven years before you start the steps, which blows my mind. Um, but in the spiritual experience on page 567, it says, what often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. So they're letting us know that we should be getting through the steps in a few months. So if we're getting through the steps in a few months, we better be starting the steps pretty close to when we're getting abstinent. Um, I heard an AA speaker once say, well, when do you start working the steps? And he said, when you stop throwing up. So they're getting people in there right away. Thank you, Rochelle, for your question. Another invitation. Anyone else with questions? Otherwise, we'll wrap up. If you're hoping somebody asks the question that you want to hear, you'd be doing a real service to ask that question because I'm sure there's people with that same question clunking around their head. Hi, Kim. Um, it's Kat T in Colorado. Kaya. Kat and Kaya. And Lonnie else? P. Lonnie P. Anyone else? I think I heard a Hyatt too, Leia. Yeah, I got that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyone else? Going once. Twice. Okay. Cat, you're up. Thanks. Um, thanks, Kim, for your great talk. I just had a question about if someone is in and out of the food and struggling getting abstinent, what would you say to do in terms of just the program? Just that's it. Thanks. You know, if, if I if I knew that cat, I would I would be so happy because I don't know I I don't know what gives people that point of desperation. You know, um, I I like I'm just going to describe it to you. I love on in Vision for You when it talks about that point, that jumping off point. Um, the bottom of 151 says, now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment, so just being abstinent. Says I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. The ex problem drinker we drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to have a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will pleasantly try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday, he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place, and he will wish for the end. I wish I could create that for somebody, but I can't. And, the, and it tells us that John Barleycorn is our best advocate. You know, that's the hardest thing is to watch someone suffer because you know how they're suffering and not being able to help them. But I have to understand, and my mom's in a way, man. 
my mom couldn't convince me of anything. It wasn't until the food beat me up that I came into Overeaters Anonymous. And then even in Overeaters Anonymous, I was going in and out because I was worshiping um, you know, abstinence. So for me personally, I feel as a recovered person, what my job is is to be consistent in carrying the message, to give someone an adequate representation of what this book is saying, to not try to love them until they love themselves and all that kind of bullshit that we do in the rooms, but just to let them know that they are doomed if they don't do this work. And when they're ready, make sure that my hand is, is out. You know, um, I love, you know, everything that we do in the, in, the, uh, in the steps and everything is we, 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 we. The one thing that isn't we is the OA pledge. The OA pledge says always to extend the hand and heart of OA to all who share my compulsion. For this, I am responsible. So all I can do is hold out my hand, and when someone is ready, grab on. But I can't make anyone desperate. I can't make anyone willing. I can't make anyone's step one experience any different than what they need it to be. Um, so I just try to stand at ready, because I believe there's a sacred moment when the message is clear and the person's ear is open. And I don't know when that's going to be. So you know, I always try to be this, the idea that, I don't want it to be the day someone's ear is open and I'm in a bad mood being a bitch. I'm sorry, I keep cursing. Um, but I just want to make sure that I'm there and available. So if you're in and out of the food, you know, my feeling is expose yourself to the solution as much as possible. But unfortunately, until you get to that point we talked about on page 25, where life is impossible, most people aren't going to be willing to do the work that's required. Thank you very Thank much, Kat. Kaya, your turn. Hi, do you hear me? Sure do. Okay, thank you so much. And Kim, you always inspire me every time you speak. So I want to thank you for today and for all the times you share. And I wanted to know, what do you suggest if I've done the steps abstinently, specifically steps four and many step tens on the same resentment? And it has improved somewhat, but it's still very strong and not gone. Okay, and you're you're still abstinent, Haya? So I'm not. So I'm not. Like, you're not abstinent. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna have to go back through the steps, because I've done the, them a number the, of times, and I'm like a little burnt out of doing the steps and doing them, and then constantly picking up. I understand, but you're gonna have to go back through them. But I'm just gonna give you an idea. Once you get back into step ten, the big thing for me in step eleven, which is different than step ten, is what corrective measures should be taken. Because a lot of times I think people say, well, they just do the inventory and then they, you know, um, acceptance is the answer, which I know is a big thing people talk about. But sometimes for me, acceptance means action. What actions am I going to take? So what I had to do is make step 10 and 11 really breathing for me. It couldn't just be like, I'm Catholic, and it couldn't be just like those little prayers I said at night, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray this for my soul. It just became words. It needed to be have depth and weight. So I needed to recommit myself to this work after 17 years. And then I feel the desperation of a drowning woman um, in recovery because I understand what I suffer from. And what I find specifically is working with other people keeps me tethered to my powerlessness. Um, the other thing that's been helpful to me, once again, you got to go through the steps again, is in steps four through, through nine, we're talked about ideals, especially in the sex conduct, but I think of them as relationship conduct. So I create ideals in my life. You know, who do I want to be as a daughter? Who do I want to be as an employee? Who do I, I have a dog now that's not doing well, and, and um, 
he's, you know, he's able to die, but he's old. And I've never had a dog before. So I had to create a new ideal for him so that I can live in integrity with making sure I'm advocating for him and what he needs versus what I want. I've had to do a new ideal recently for my parents. And that sounds weird, but it's kind of the same thing. My parents are aging now, and I have to start looking at how I'm going to be useful to them. So what I find is that a lot of times people get into 10 and 11, and as long as things are going their way, they let up on the work. I get more intense in the work. And a lot of that is that I, you know, simple formula is step 10 is a daily inventory. I need contact with recovered people because I can't trust my own mind. Step 11 is contact with a higher power on a daily basis. And it's three practices, morning, evening, and pausing throughout the day. If you're not doing all three, you're not doing step 11. And step 12 is daily contact with the still suffering. It may not be a sponsee. It might be returning phone calls. It might be giving service at a meeting. But I need to have all three of those in my day. Otherwise, I'm going to be vulnerable to picking up again. Because wherever I don't ask God into is exactly where the disease is going to get me back, which is why once I'm in the food, I'm disconnected because I am now have a higher power of food, which is why you've got to go back in them again. But just to kind of give you an idea, once you get through it again, keep that desperation in working 10, 11, and 12. My experience is that everyone who I know who stayed actively engaged in 10, 11, and 12 has stayed recovered. Everyone I know who's gotten untethered from the practices has gone back to the food. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Saya. Roz C. Roz C. Star one to unmute. Okay, maybe she got pulled away. Lonnie P. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, great. Um, this is Lonnie P. And um, I really don't want to be sharing right now. But, and you kind of answered this already, Kim, but I've been in the food. Um, I got away from 10, 11, and 12 months ago. Um, I had started working my steps again, got as far as like getting into a four step, picked up the food, never gave away the four step. And I, I haven't been able to put it down since. And I'm scared to death, but yet I don't know what it's going to take for me to be able to put it down and, and, and work with somebody else. You know, I've, I've, I've attempted to find a, a sponsor uh, again and again, um, somebody that can truly help me and go through the steps again. And, and I just feel really stuck. Um, and it's a very scary place to be. Um, I'm powerless. I admit that. My life is totally unmanageable. I'm scared to death, and I don't know what it's going to take. What would you suggest? I, I Once again, I wish I had an answer. I can just tell you some of the things experientially. You know, one of the big things with unmanageability for me was specifically and more about alcoholism was to really fully concede that my life was unmanageable, drunk or sober. As long as I thought my my life was manageable sober, I wouldn't do 10, 11, and 12. Because once again, our, our biggest my biggest job every morning is to quit playing God. 
that's my biggest job every morning. So, you know, I think what's good is you did connect into the idea that you stopped the practices and the consequences are that you, you picked up again. I think it's really important for us to acknowledge it. It doesn't come out of left field. That's why I love in gym when that suddenly is, is funny with the whiskey and the milk, but it's that prior paragraph to see what my thinking is prior to picking up, and that's where I need my higher power. Um, you know, one of the things, like, only thing I can really suggest to you is we're so blessed on this line that we have so many recordings where people go over a chapter, um, in a whole chapter in an hour. So even if you can't find someone to work with, listen to the doctor's opinion. Listen to a couple people teach it. Call people. Ask your questions. What are those things that you're saying, yeah, that's not me? Yeah, that might be other people. Or I know that, you know, I know this is, I know exactly what this means. There's a um, speaker I love that says, it's not what we know, we don't know that will kill us, but what we know for sure that isn't true that will kill us. So I have to question my old ideas. So call people. Hopefully something will turn into a, a, a sponsor relationship, but in the midst of it, stay in those step one chapters. You know, bathe yourself in this big book. Because I don't know what's going to make you stop eating. I don't. I mean, I'll just, I'll just describe my step one experience. And I have to tell you, I've heard some people, it was only after, you know, in retrospect, after the steps that I really saw my quote-unquote bottom, which I think a lot of people think has to do with physical. I don't think it has to do with physical. I think it's a spiritual bankruptcy that we hit. I, was, I had this ankle injury, and I was in the most pain I've ever been in. I'm, I'm bed-bound. I can only get, you know, the pain is tolerable if I had my laying on my back with my ankle like four or five pillows upwards, well above my heart. And I'm laying in the bed having to go to the bathroom, and I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to pee in my bed. I can't do this. I cannot get up. The pain is too much. And 15 minutes later, I thought, whew, I could really go for some pasta. And I got up on my little walker that I had and scurried into the kitchen, which I have to tell you is twice the distance to my bathroom, twice. And I sat there in the most painful way it can possibly be, which is to have my leg dangle and boiled pasta for 10 minutes. That is the point I knew that I would do anything for food and I would, you know, I would pee in my bed because, it was, because of the pain, but yet I'm willing to get up and make the pasta. I wish I could create that experience for someone else, but I can't. That's that jumping off point that I just read. I don't know how to create that for somebody. But my feeling is if you just stay in the book, stay in those chapters, that hopefully something will happen. And I just think that's when God's going to intercede. Thank you, Lonnie P. Rod C., are you available now? All right, perhaps not. Kim, thank you so much for this presentation this morning. We appreciate your generous service to all of us. And I'll close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fast for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows 
clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.